Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a really interesting guest today, uh, Michelle Seiler-Tucker. She's the author of a book called Exit Rich, the 6P Method to Sell Your Business for Huge Profit. Uh, she's also the founder and CEO of what's called Seiler Tucker Incorporated. Michelle has sold hundreds of businesses to date which is a lot, and currently owns and operates several successful businesses. She's a leading authority on buying, selling, and improving businesses, as well as increasing business revenue streams. So I think this will be a topic that uh, listeners will be very, very interested in hearing. So Michelle, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, tell me about uh, a bit about your history in business. What got you interested in business and you know any interesting stories from the past that are instructive for people to listen to? I've, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've owned many different businesses and different verticals, even as a little girl. I always knew uh, that I wanted to own my own business. I told my mom, you know, way back when that, mom, I'm not going to work for anyone. I'm going to be my own boss. Etc. So I knew that as a very young girl, I wasn't your typical child. I didn't play with toys and dolls and things like that. I would walk around with a notebook and a pen and I'd walk up to perfect strangers and start asking them questions. Like, what do you do? How did you start doing it? You know? And so I've always been interested in people. I've always been extremely curious. I've always been passionate about entrepreneurship and I've always been passionate about writing. I did get a job in corporate America because Xerox recruited me. And within six months, they promoted me to regional vice president of about 100, 150 different salespeople. And then I realized really quickly that I don't want the job. I hate doing management and leadership in corporate America. I ended up leaving Xerox and transitioning into my own franchise development, franchise sales, franchise consulting company, while I was an equity partner with different franchisors. I had so many buyers that kept asking me for existing businesses. And I kept saying, no, we don't do that. We just specialize in startup franchises. And then, you know, one day I'm like, why am I saying no? I need to listen to the clients, listen to what the consumers are asking for, you know, follow my own advice. And um, that's when I started my mergers and acquisitions firm over 20 years ago. Okay. What prompted you to write Exit Rich? Like, you know, I guess you must have identified that a lot of business owners maybe are good at running a business, but then when it comes time to sell, they don't know what to do or what was the motivation for it? Well, a lot of business owners are not good at running businesses either. Exit Rich is actually my third book. I wrote Sell Your Business for One It's Worth in 2013. The reason I wrote Exit Rich is, is two big reasons. Number one, Steve Forbes, who endorsed my book, Exit Rich. Steve Forbes says 80% of businesses will never sell. 80%. That should be a huge wake-up call, a slap in the face to business owners, because you have less than a 20% chance of success. Many business owners are exiting poor. They're selling for pennies on a dollar, closing their business, filing bankruptcy. And so the reason I wrote Exit Rich is because most, I'm really trying to help change the mindset of business owners and get them to stop thinking about their business as their baby. Your business is not your baby. Your babies are at home. <laughs> you know, always say, go home, love them, hug them, kiss them. Your business is your most valuable asset. Most business owners don't think about selling their business until an internal or external catastrophic event occurs. Internal is 
health issues, partners disputes, divorce, death, external is this this pandemic we're in. And trying to sell during a catastrophe is the worst time to sell your business. The other reason I wrote Exit Rich is because when I wrote Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth back in 2013, I did the research and learned that 90% of all startups would fail within the first one to five years. We all know that that's common knowledge. But when I started doing the research for Exit Rich, I learned that the landscape has really flip-flopped. It's changed dramatically. Startups are not at great risk anymore. It's the existing businesses that are at great risk. Out of 27.6 million companies, those that have been in business 10 years or longer, 70% will go out of business. 70%. Now, you probably hear the big, you know, you hear about the big uh, public companies all the time in the media. Toys R Us in business 75 years goes out of business. Toys R Us, Drymark, Pier 1. You know, Good Diamond Chocolate's closing down 1,500 locations. GNC's closing down 900 locations. Disney stores are going out of business. But the media doesn't talk about the private businesses that are going out of business. Like I said, selling for pennies on the dollar, exiting poor, selling their business, closing their business, or even worse, filing bankruptcy. So I wrote Exit Rich because business owners need to start thinking about their business as a valuable asset. They need to plan their exit from the beginning. Like Stephen Covey says, start with the, with the end in mind. And they need to build a solid infrastructure so that their business is sustainable, scalable. And when they're ready to sell, they actually will have a sellable asset. So, well, I'm sure a big question is, uh, you know, with the COVID situation of the past year and a half, I'm sure it's put the pressure on businesses big time. Like how has this changed the whole landscape? Well, it's changed it for it's changed it for the good and for the bad. It depends upon what industry you're in. If you're in hospitality, you know, hospitality took a nosedive and a lot of these businesses are not sellable right now because because of the industry, you know, nobody's going out to eat. Nobody's staying in hotels. I mean, this industry is going to bounce back, obviously, but it took a huge nosedive and many business owners are trying to sell their restaurants and buyers don't want to buy them. There's five different types of buyers. The only type of buyers that are buying distressed businesses are turnaround specialists. But guess what? There's other industries that are thriving and have had their best years ever. 2020 and 2021 has been their best years ever. Any, Any type of home remodeling, home renovation, you know, swimming pool companies, landscape companies. Uh, any type of online e-commerce businesses, SaaS businesses. There's so many businesses that are thriving, manufacturing, healthcare, staffing, these IT. These businesses are really, really thriving and have their best years ever, whereas other companies have taken a nosedive. There's so much M&A activity right now. In fact, there's a huge bottleneck because one private equity group might have 12 deals under LOI, under letter of intent, and they're not getting to the rest of our deals. So there's a huge M&A activity for businesses, good businesses, businesses that have over a million dollars in EBITDA. The businesses that have under a million dollars in EBITDA, not as much. I've always said there's there's uh, more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to buy. So what what are some of the common I don't know, misconceptions or mistakes business owners make when they want to sell? Like, how long, First of all, how long of a runway? So do they wake up and say, I'm, I'm sure they're thinking for a while, but they're like, all right. I'm going to sell my business. I guess I'll call a business broker or like what's the typical mindset and plan versus what you advocate? Well, there's a big difference between a business broker and mergers and acquisitions advisor. A business broker sells pizzerias and restaurants and coffee shops. A M&A advisor sells middle market, typically 10 million and up. We're actually M&A advisors, not business brokers. So that's number one. Number two, a lot of times business owners, you know, it's, it's hard to tell you what the runway is because it depends upon where they're at. You know, a lot of business owners come to us and 
They want to sell their business because a catastrophic event has occurred, not because the business is doing well and they need to sell their business, but they want 10, 15, $20 million for their company because that's what they feel like they need and wish to retire on. And their business is, you know, maybe worth a half a million or a million dollars. So there's a huge, there's a huge pricing gap on what the business is worth versus what the owner feels like they need and wish to enter the next phase of their life. So if there's this huge pricing gap and they're nowhere close to what they need, then the business is not sellable. We have to work with them. We have to fix the business. We have to grow their business. We don't just sell businesses. We specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing. We partner with business owners. I invest my money, core competencies, resources. You know, last deal I did, I invested a quarter million dollars. And we partner with business owners. If if I'm not going to partner with a business owner, we have a road to sell program too, where we actually get the businesses sellable and, and we help grow that business so they can sell for their desired price tag. If the business is worth what the owner wants for it, and they have over a million dollars in EBITDA, then the road can be quite short. It can be three months, four months, six months. It just really depends upon what's the industry, where are they located. The, the higher the EBITDA, the more buyers we have, the quicker the business will sell. So you're not in the business broker world. You're kind of at a higher level. But you said, you know, several million or 10 million in that world. Yeah, 10 million and up is our sweet spot. 10 million. Yeah. Are you still seeing the same level of mistakes that you'll see in small businesses or is it a different game? Like what are the particular problems that businesses of that size face? So there's still a lot of mistakes, even even in that size. The biggest mistakes business owners make, one of them I mentioned earlier, was that business owners don't think about selling their business. They don't plan their exit. And you mentioned it earlier. You said they wake up one day and, and say, oh, I want to sell my business. Well, guess what? They probably don't have a sellable asset. They don't have a business that buyers want to buy. Most business most business owners create a glorified job and wish they go to work at every day versus a business that actually works for them. So that's the biggest mistake is not planning your exit. Your business is your most valuable asset. It's kind of like a financial portfolio. You need to plan. You need to plan for that big day. You need to sell when you're in your prime. That's one of the biggest mistakes. The other big mistake is, the business is dependent upon the owner. Even in some of the larger businesses, we're selling business right now for $70 million. They have 350 employees. But that owner, the business is still dependent upon the owner. The owner has all the client relationships. The owner has so much data in their head. All the processes haven't been defined yet. So there's still, there's no way that that owner can sell 100% of the company. So we'll have to sell 70%, 80% of that business. And the other biggest mistake is the business owners don't really build an infrastructure. They focus on sales. Getting, getting business in the door, getting business in the door, but then they don't build a foundation. What happens if you're trying to build a house and you don't build a solid foundation? What happens to the house? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, it has problems that could fall apart, all that stuff. Yeah. Same thing with a business. So they don't build a solid infrastructure. They don't operate on what I call the six P's that we talk about in um, Exit Rich. And they certainly don't plan their exit. Those are some of the biggest mistakes. 
I know it depends on the industry, but if you have a business that is really systematized, let's say the owner really only has to work maybe one or two hours a week on it versus yeah. one that's not, and it's, you know, will the one that's systematized be recognized by the market and have a much higher multiple of sale or, or no? So the way that you get a higher multiple of sale is you operate in all six P's. Number one, you have, you need people. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs starting businesses, but they don't have any infrastructure. They have a widget, they have a marketing system. They don't have any employees. They might have a couple of subcontractors. They're operating now their house. Is that sellable? Yes, but not for maximum value. And it depends upon who we're selling the business to, if they're going to roll it up into its current structure, or if it's a buyer who, who wants to buy the business, but they want it to have an infrastructure. Does that make sense? Okay. So the way to maximize value is to actually build a business that people want to buy. Number one, they want to buy a business that has people. Most businesses are dependent upon the owner. So you want to make sure you have people. Also, buyers want to buy a business where the second P is product, where the industry product is thriving, not dying. There are so many industries that are dying that buyers won't even touch. They won't even look at. So we want to make sure that that company is in a thriving industry, thriving product. Plus, we want to make sure that they have multiple profit centers. So many businesses like restaurants, restaurants got killed during um, this pandemic and the reason I got crushed is because they have one profit center. The only way they get paid is people come in and eat or take food to go. They don't have multiple profit centers. Processes are another way to maximize value, especially if the processes are designed with the customer experience in mind. Most companies have broken processes. They're designed to alienate the client, not create wow experiences for the customer. Uh, and then the other thing that we really look at is all those processes documented? Do we have policy and procedure manuals? Do we have SOP checklists for each department? Are there employee handbooks? Are there non-competes? All of this paper, buyers are going to want to see during due diligence. And then the next thing, which is the highest value driver, and this is where most business owners make all the mistakes. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And this is called proprietary assets. Let me give you a crash course on valuations. Every industry other than SaaS is valuated on a multiple of EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, or a multiple of seller's discretionary earnings or net income. Businesses that have under a million dollars in EBITDA will typically trade for one to three, three and a half times earnings, depending upon their proprietary asset. Businesses that have over a million dollars in EBITDA that's the sweet spot. That's where all the buyers are. Those businesses will typically tra start trading at five and up, four, five and up times EBITDA, again, depending upon mm -hmm. these proprietary assets. So proprietary assets can take you from a five to six to an eight to a 10 multiple. Number one, there's six pillars to proprietary. Number one is branding. The more well-branded you are, the more I can sell your company for, as long as your brand is relevant in the mind of the consumer meaning that nobody's paying any money for Blockbuster, right? What would, what would be some examples of proprietary assets companies you've dealt with before? Well, can't people can't think of what they are. Well, I'm telling you, branding is number one. Apple is worth $359 million, billion. Apple, $359 billion. That's just the brand. That's not assets. That's not inventory. That's not cash flow. That's just the brand. Okay. I can't tell you the name of the companies that I've sold with large brands because of confidentiality to private companies, not public, but I will give you some case studies. Next is trademarks, trademark your company name, your slogan, your logo, your podcast, but don't just get a state trademark, get a federal trademark. Have you, do you have a federal trademark on your podcast, Richard? I didn't think, yeah, I didn't think to do that. No. 
No, you didn't think to do that because most business owners don't think to do that. Most entrepreneurs don't think about these proprietary assets. Here's what happens. I've seen lots of podcast hosts have to shut down their podcast, start a new podcast because they they never check the federal database to make sure that name is available. What do entrepreneurs do? They come up with a name, they go to GoDaddy, they see if they can get the .com and boom, they go to Texas or whatever state they live in and they get a state trademark, but they never check the federal database. I've seen businesses be in business five, 10, 15 years and all of a sudden receive a cyst and desist letter in the mail and they have to stop using that company name and they have to start the branding process all over again. Also very important, trademark your products. A lot of business owners never think about getting a federal trademark on their products. That's financial suicide. We have a company right now we're selling for about $50 million. They have 12 products and each one has a federal trademark. And each one has exclusivity. One's exclusive in Walmart. One's exclusive in in Target. One's in TJ Maxx. Patents are another big uh, proprietary asset. If you've ever watched Shark Tank, all sharks always ask, do you have a patent on that? Do you have a utility patent? We sold a company for $18 million that wasn't making any money, but they had, guess what? 18 patents. Now, here's what, here's what you really need to know, because here's another mistake that business owners make. And I could, you know, I could write a book just titled <laughs> Mistakes That Business Owners Make, but you want to take your intellectual property and hold it in a separate corporation. You don't co-mingle your assets. If you own the real estate, you put that in a separate corporation. You don't put it in the same corporation as your business. Your IP, your trademarks, your intellectual property, your patents, that has to be in a separate corporation. The next valuable thing that buyers will pay a lot of money for are contracts, manufacturing contracts, distribution contracts, vendors, uh, franchisees, any type of exclusivity contracts, especially client contracts, especially if they have a reoccurring uh, model with reoccurring revenue subscription model. Now, here's a mistake the business owners make with contracts. I've been doing this 20 years, over a thousand transactions. I've never seen an owner get this right. You need the two-sentence transferability clause in your contract that says this contract is transferable upon the new entity because 98% of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. If your client does not agree to a stock sale and your buyers don't agree to sign consent to transfer, then you're just going to fall dead in its tracks. Also, we're working with a marketing digital agency right now. They have 2,000 clients. Are they going to go to all 2,000 clients that they have contracts with and get them to sign consent to transfer? No. Why why would they? So they need to do that? I mean, what the Absolutely 1,000% need to do that. Absolutely. Because if it's an asset sale and not a stock sale, those contracts don't automatically transfer. So what they needed to do is change their contract now to include the transferability correct, clause. Correct, correct. What's an example of what the clause would say? Well, I just said it. It's, it's, it's a two-sentence clause that says this contract is transferable upon a new entity. It's that simple. Mm, okay. There's right. a couple more words in there. I don't have it memorized, but it's that simple. And so most sales, like I said, 98% of sales are asset sales, not stock sales. You don't want to go to your clients and ask them to sign consent to transfer because what if the deal falls apart? Now your customers know you want to sell your business, right? Yep, yep. It's a mess. So, look, there was, there was a private equity group. I'll give you another case study to illustrate this point. There was a private equity group that bought a business brokerage firm. This is decades ago. Uh, they had about 1,500 franchisees. They paid millions for the company. They closed on, on the transaction. And then the franchisee was wondering why the franchisee, I mean, the franchisor, said that the franchisees kept saying, well, look, we're not transferring over. We're not signing consent to transfer. We don't have to. 
There, there's no language in our contract that transfers over. The due diligence team did not read the contracts. So then the franchisor says, well, let's throw a big party. Let's invite everybody to come. Out of 1,500 franchisees, only one franchisee signed the consent to transfer. All the rest would not transfer over because they thought the private equity group was was very arrogant and inexperienced, and they didn't want to do business with them. Within 90 days, a franchise, the franchisor, the private equity group, filed bankruptcy, sued their entire legal team plus their due diligence team. So what we're talking about here are the mistakes that business owners make and how to be proactive so this doesn't happen to you. What do you do? You represent people on the buyer's side, and how do you advise them if they run across a business that they're interested in, but it doesn't have any of these contracts set up? Do you request a renegotiation renegotiation on the value, or do you tell the your buyer like walk away? It's bad news, or what do you do? So in, my, in most cases, we're working with the seller, but we work with the seller to make sure that they get the transferability clause, or they can get their clients to sign consent to transfer. And we are transparent with the buyers, letting them know that the contracts are transparent enough. But we work very, very diligently with the seller to make sure that they get those language and that language into the contracts. So of the various elements you talked about, you know, the patents, the trademarks, the transfer consents, et cetera. Do you have like a ranking of, you know, approximately how much each adds value to the sale of a business? Is there one or two above all that really amp up the value a lot? Well, let's finish going through them and then we can go back and do that. So sure. the next one is called database. Have you ever heard of a little company called WhatsApp? Was it making any money? Oh, it was Emerging, Emerging, Emerging. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp because WhatsApp had a billion users and Facebook knew they could monetize an ROI on the sale of that business. Next, we have celebrity endorsements. Celebrity endorsements can bring a lot of value. We have a, a client we're working with that's products are approved by Oprah and a strategic will pay a lot of money for that because they want to get their products in front of Oprah. The other thing is digital real estate. Digital real estate or celebrity um, endorsements, radio personalities. You know, we um, have different companies that have celebrity endorsements on the radio, skincare, diet companies, et cetera. The celebrity or radio personality can only endorse one vertical. Otherwise, they lose credibility. When you got a company on the radio endorsed by a celebrity and they own all those prime spots, and that radio station and celebrity host cannot take any other skincare companies, that raises the value of that skincare company dramatically because that is prime digital real estate. Same thing with e-commerce businesses. When they have the top three positions, you know, for whatever they manufacture or whatever they distribute on Amazon, Etsy, Wayfair, et cetera. The other big thing is content. Here's the biggest mistake business owners make too, is that they go to O Fiverr, they go to Elance, they go, they hire interns, they have 1099s, and they get them to produce blogs, videos, articles, so on and so forth. That owner does not own that content. Even if they paid for it? What do you mean? That's right. It doesn't matter. They do not own that content unless they get a release signed by the intern, by the 1099, by whoever provided that content. They have to get a release that says that they don't own the content. The owner that's paying for the work owns the content. If you don't have that release signed, you do not own the content. Only if you have employees, W-2s, that are creating that content for you. I've seen lots of different lawsuits over the battle of the content who owns what. So even if you pay someone for years to create content, 
they can still try to claim it as their own. Absolutely. Thousand percent. Yep. Have you ever went and have you ever had a photo shoot and then have their, their photography name all over the pictures? You can't use yeah. those pictures. Yeah. You can pay for them, but you still got to get their permission to use those photographs in different publications. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting someone to develop content for you, whether it's video content, graphics, you know, logos, you need to make sure that that provider signs a release. It doesn't matter if you pay for it. You got to get a release signed. So back to ranking. So it's very difficult to say, oh, how do we rank this? <laughs> Who determines value? The buyer does. The way that we're able to create a bidding war is when we have businesses over a million dollars in EBITDA that are operating on all six cylinders, all six Ps, and they have some of these proprietary assets, we find a buy, we find buyers that are willing to pay top dollar and outbid everyone else. I'll give you an example. So we had an oil manufacturing business that had 70% of their concentrate, 70% of their revenues was tied up in BP contract. So they operated on all six cylinders except for patrons that had customer concentration, not customer diversification. But that BP contract is very valuable. Even though it's customer concentration, it's very valuable to strategics. We have 550 buyers look at this business. We narrowed it down to 12 LOIs. Every single LOI had clawbacks, earnouts, different contingencies in place to mitigate their risk in case the company lost the BP contract. And I had two owners and I both, you know, they both said, oh, we're not doing that, we're not doing that. So I found a strategic that has similar products and services. They, they said they have been trying to get in BP for decades, could never get their products in the door. And they don't, they didn't care about customer concentration. All they cared about was getting their products and services MVP because they knew that would catapult their business to the next level. So they said they're going to outbid. They said, look, we'll outbid everybody else. They paid $15 million for 70% of the company, which is 129% more than what the business appraises for. So how do you rank? How do you create value? We create value by finding the right strategic buyers that are willing to pay top dollar for synergies that will catapult their business to the next level and outbid everybody else. Does that make sense? Yeah, but then I have the question of like, how do you know where to find buyers? How do you ever, without giving away- Because this is my expertise. This is my core competency. This is what I do every day. I have over, we have thousands upon thousands of buyers in our database. We know how to find the buyers. Okay, I got you. So again, if someone has a firm, it's over 10 million in in revenue, then they would look for what- what would you call it? So it's not a business broker, but what would you call yourself? Is it a mergers well, what, and acquisitions I'm a, specialist? I'm an M&A, MI, which is a mergers and acquisitions master intermediary, a certified mergers and acquisitions professional. Okay. I didn't even know that, uh, you know, those people existed. So that's interesting. What, what What's the upper limit of the businesses you handle? Is there an, another level of No, there's not, that, there's not an upper even... limit on what we handle. And let me explain why you would want an M&A advisor instead of a business broker. If you're trying to sell a $20 million company, let's say it's a manufacturing company and you specialize in food manufacturing. Do you really want to go to a business broker that specializes in selling restaurants and pizzerias and coffee shops? No, because they're not going to, there's five different types of buyers. Most brokers don't even know there's five different types of buyers. They're not going to know who the private equity groups are. They're not going to know what buyers will pay more for certain synergies. They're not going to know what buyers can take advantage of economies of scale and, and, and decrease infrastructure so they can increase over, so they can um, increase EBITDA. So you really want to go to a professional advisor who has expertise and experience of selling metal market businesses. 
Now, if you have a pizzeria to, to sell, go to a business broker. What's the difference in the in terms of how the buyers buy at the business broker level versus your level? Like, you know, do they put uh, thirty or fifty percent down at the lower level and then they finance the rest? But at your level, they pay all cash, or what's what's the difference? So, the level of smaller businesses, like your coffee shops, restaurants, ice cream stores, things of that nature, those are there's five different types of buyers. Ninety percent of buyers are first time buyers. They buy those smaller businesses. They typically pay so much down and want to sell or finance the difference, so they get an SBA loan. Turnaround specialists will also buy restaurants and smaller type businesses, distressed assets. They buy larger distressed assets as well. And they typically will leverage the assets of the, biz- of the business to buy the business without putting up any money. And then at a higher level, which is middle market, that's typically private equity groups that buy based on platforms and add-ons, strategic slash competitors and serial entrepreneurs. And they, yes, they have disposable income. Yes, they're going to ask for some seller financing because everyone wants to use somebody else's money. You know, it's leveraging their assets. And, um, but they buy very differently. They're quick to pull the trigger. Uh, their due diligence is different. Everything's different from middle market to small market. Okay. Uh, any other uh, particulars? Do they usually require the owner to work in the business for a year or two after the sale to make sure there's a smooth transition or like what other particulars? Just, it depends upon how, it depends upon how dependent that business is on the owner. You know, if that business can run without the owner, then they're not going to require the owner to stay there. If that business is like the company that we're selling for 60 to $70 million, that business is dependent upon that owner to work, to, to stay in that business. So they're going to buy a percentage of the company. So in my book, Exit Rich, we listed negotiables and non-negotiables of each buyer type and how you should structure your deal to appeal to each. So what are the names of these uh, buyer types or what are their archetypes look like? What are the names? Yeah, uh, you know, like, um, do you have names for the five different types of yeah, buyers? Yeah, we just went through them. Number one is first-time buyers. Okay. They buy small businesses. Number two is turnaround specialists. They buy distressed assets. Number three is PEGs, private equity groups. They buy based on platforms and add-ons. Do you understand what I mean when I say platforms and add-ons? Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe one clarification, go ahead. <laughs> so, so let's say that, let's say that a private equity group wants to get into healthcare staffing. They won't even look at a healthcare staffing company unless it has at least $3 million in EBITDA and up. But let's say they're already in healthcare staffing. They're going to look at smaller add-ons that are in that space and they'll consider them for under a million dollars in EBITDA. Then we have strategics and competitors are, are, are the fourth type of buyers. Strategics and competitors typically buy, pay the highest multiples because they're buying synergies or buying these synergies that will help catapult their current business to the next level. And then the last type of buyer is what I call storm chasers. These are sophisticated serial entrepreneurs and they chase EBITDA. They're industry agnostic and they chase EBITDA. What's a, what, I mean, are the storm chasers rare or like which ones are the most common that you see? The more, at, at that level of metal market, the most common that we see is private equity groups, um, strategics. And a lot of times we have, we have serial sophisticated entrepreneurs. I have some that give me an offer on every single deal I have. That doesn't mean um, fruition, but they give me offers on almost everything. Do, do business owners have to worry if they sell to the wrong group that they'll come after them later and try to sue them or... You know, maybe the people they sell to screw up the business, ruin its revenue, then they sue them, blaming them, and then they have a mess. Like, how do you avoid that? 
Well, every transaction, well, that's a lawyer's job, not my job, but every transaction has closing documents. Every transaction is going to have reps and warranties. And it's the reps and warranties that the buyer and seller will agree upon. Uh, but the reps and warranties are spelled out very clearly. And it's typically reps and warranties that really, if a buyer is going to sue a seller, it's reps and warranties that a seller defaulted on. Maybe a seller says, oh, well, my revenues are this, my EBITDA is this, I have, you know, this main client, here's who my clients are, da, da, da. and maybe they were deceitful, they lied, something happened, then the buyer could go after the seller. But if the buyer just goes in there and ruins the business. I mean, anybody can sue anybody for whatever reason. But if the buyer just goes in there and ruins the business, no fault of the seller at all, then they're not really going to have much of a strong case. So the reps and warranties are just to give the buyer reassurance that what the seller is saying is is truthful and factual. They're buying, you know, they're getting what they think they're buying. Okay. And then do you have, um, I mean, I, I know you do the actual work of the selling and the helping of, of customers, but in your books are the advice portion of it. So do you have recommendations for people that are close to 1 million in EBITDA, but not there, how to get there? And then do you have recommendations if people want to transition and move up from you know the 1 million mark to the 10 million mark? Yeah, absolutely. So remember earlier, I said, we don't just sell businesses. We specialize in buying, fixing, growing, and selling. So you know, I've been partnering with business owners, investing my time, expertise, core competencies, partnering with business owners to fix their business, grow their business, put them on a build to sell model. We also have a road to sell model where if a business, you know, wants to sell and they're not quite there, their EBITDA is not high enough, we have a road to sell model uh, that we put them in and we help them. We help mentor them to get them to where they need to be. Okay. And then since you've seen about, like you said, a thousand plus transactions, any trends that you're seeing that are new? You know, like what's happening with business? Are there certain ones that are more in favor now or less in favor? I think, you know, the biggest trend that we're, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's industries that are more in favor right now because their numbers are better because their business is doing so much better because of the pandemic. Whenever an industry or business is doing better, that's going to increase buyer activity. That's going to increase the purchase price. The trend that we're seeing really is there's so much activity in the M&A space more so than, than it's been in quite some time. And the biggest trend is that so many companies, so many industries are having record, record, record years. And, you know, they're wanting to cash out for that. Well, you're not necessarily going to cash out for that because if you're writing, if, if this is an anomaly based upon the pandemic, then buyers and us are going to look, to, look at your business based upon a three and five year average and really normalize those financials out because the buyer is not going to pay you for something that's not sustainable. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, very good. So for listeners, again, that are below the 1 million EBITDA, what's your recommendation on resources to start? And then for the ones that are close to the 10 or over the 10, what should they do? Who, who should contact you right away versus uh, read some of your books first or look at your well, material here's, first? Here's the deal. Even, even if a business is not close to a million, we have a road to sell program. So all business, you know, business owners are really looking to grow their business, to plan out their exit strategy, to build the infrastructure on what I call the six P's in my book, Exit Rich. Then definitely call us, look us up, go to our website, SylerTucker.com. We have a road to sell program and um, it, it, it includes so much, but this road to sell program is guaranteed to get you to where you need to be. Um, if you have an EBITDA of over a million and you want to sell your business and reach out to us, call us, 
Go get our book, Exit Rich. Um, is this a good time to tell everybody about Exit Rich and the bonuses if they come with it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I want people to know how to get in touch with you and what resources you have. So go ahead, tell them everything. So our main website is SilerTucker.com. That's SilerTucker.com. Exit Rich is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, US, USA Today bestseller. Of course, Amazon bestseller, Inc. original, endorsed by Steve Forbes. It said, Exit Rich is a gold mine because business owners leave way too much money on the table when they sell their business. Sharon Lecter, do you know who Sharon Lecter is? Yeah, I know. She was associated with Robert Kiyosaki for a while. And, well, yeah. she was his co author. She was his co author for Rich Dad, Poor Dad, New York Times bestselling author five times, CPA, financial literacy expert, the advisor to many different presidents. And then Kevin Harrington, original Shark on Shark Tank, wrote the foreword. So Exit Rich is not just about selling your business. It's actually about building a sellable asset that buyers will outbid other buyers and pay top dollar for your company. And you can go to ExitRichBook.com if you're in the United States, $24.79 plus shipping cost. We will ship the hardcover to your doorstep. We'll email you the digital download. We'll give you a lifetime membership into the Exit Rich Book Club. And that has video content, me doing deep dives in these different techniques and strategies I've been teaching in trenches for the last 20 years, plus documents. Documents to operate your business, documents to sell your company. So we have sample employee handbooks, org charts, policy and procedure manuals, sample 11 tents, purchase agreements, due diligence checklists, closing documents. All of these documents to operate and sell your business are there for your review and download. It will cost you probably over $50,000 if you want to an attorney to recreate. I know I've spent the money. And then we'll also give you a 30-day membership into Club CEOs. And Club CEOs is an entrepreneurship mastermind where we help business owners pivot and build that sustainable, scalable, sellable business. So all that's at ExitRichBook.com. If you're outside of the United States, go to Amazon, send us a receipt, and we'll make sure you still get the bonuses. Okay, very good. Well, Michelle, anything else or do you think that's enough? I think that's enough unless you got more questions. No, that's good. I, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, a lot of surprising things I didn't know. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.